Good morning, everyone. It's good to worship together, to talk about the resurrection, to talk about the hope that Christ offers, and that is a hope that every single one of us have, and I am excited about that. Today, I'm, I have the privilege of introducing Dale Losh. Um, there's, been, there's times as a pastor, you have this opportunity to introduce a speaker, and sometimes that speaker is like a really, really close friend, like you've done war together, you've gone through life together, and you've just de developed this depth of friendship. I want you to know that that's absolutely not the case today. Now, the fact is, Dale and I, we've just begun our relationship. I mean, we've just begun our date, okay? And uh, I don't even know if I like him yet. But, I, yeah, I, I actually do think, but anyways. You know, there's sometimes, as a, as a leader, you get the chance to introduce somebody who's a hero. Somebody who's uh, kind of stepped in front of the bullet for you. Or has come at that time where you needed that crisis counseling or that person that took your teenage kid because you couldn't handle them anymore and they raised them. I want you to know that's not true of Dale either. Dale hasn't done diddly squat for me in that way. But we're just beginning our relationship. But there is a time when you get a chance to introduce somebody who's had an influence on you from afar through the written word the pen. This is the case with Dale. You see, several years ago, we sent out Jen Srail from Maranatha Bible Church to work in Asia, and we did it under cross-world missions. And I was asked to come out to Kansas City to spend time uh, as a missions pastor to orient with uh, cross-world to see how they did things. And this was the first time that I met Dale, and I uh, really got to understand what cross-world missions was all about. And when I went, I was very impressed with their call to make disciples. You see, I think they recognize that the church has kind of made, morphed the whole idea of making disciples into some kind of corporate production as opposed to it being an individual mandate that we are to do and to carry out. And as I heard Dale speak and as I came back from that conference and I read his book which is right here, and it's available out in the lobby, the, A Better Way, Making Disciples Wherever Life Happens, I all of a sudden found myself resonating with what was being written in this book, and I felt like somebody put in words the very thing that I had been feeling. Though I and we are just beginning to build our friendship with Dale, and though Dale has not yet taken taken a bullet for us yet, I can say that he is a friend and a hero due to the gospel that he preaches. And I'm excited that he is going to be sharing with us today. He is, it was for this very reason, because of this kindred spirit of, of this message, that I sought Dale out to come and speak for us on this day, our Missions uh, Sunday. See, we've had three parts in our message. Part one was just the idea of intimacy. Deuteronomy uh, taught us that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might. And last week we talked about our, the idea of community and how we're to love each other. But all of that is 
to prepare us to fulfill what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples. That is our influence. And because of that, I am proud that Dale is coming to be a part and to share God's word and motivate us in that way. Thank you, Dale. Let me tell you what he really said to me this morning. I mean, he said, I, he told me he was going to introduce me this morning, but you want, want to know what he really said? He said, you're our third mulligan. <laughs> now, you know what a mulligan is, right? I'm not sure if I should take that as a compliment or an insult, but um, didn't you say that if, uh, if I do okay today, you won't count this as a mulligan and they get to practice one more week? Oh, no, you didn't say that, no. It's a joy to be with you. I have really been looking forward to this. As Steve said, uh, sometimes you meet somebody and you just sort of click, and I feel like Steve is one of those guys, and I, I trust this will be just the next step in um, a relationship between you and us at Crossworld. Um, Jen Srail is a fantastic girl, and we're privileged to be able to partner with you in that way. Oswald J. Smith, founder of the great... People's Church in Toronto once famously said, no one has a right to hear the gospel twice if there remains someone who has not heard the gospel once. Now that was back in 1928. Uh, back in 1928, the world population stood at about 2 billion people. Do you realize that today there are 2.8 Seven estimated 2.7 billion people who have still never heard it once. For almost 40% of the population of the world today, it's as if there is no gospel. So if this gathering were to represent the roughly 7 billion people living in the world today, this group over here, maybe just a little bit further over, uh, is it Chad? Maybe over to Chad would represent the 40% of the world who have still never heard the gospel presentation. Could you all just stand up and stay standing? Just two seats over into here. So these part have no gospel. Now they also tell us that there's about 60% of the world today where you can no longer send people like me, uh, religious workers, in to take the gospel. So most of that 60 lives amongst these 40, plus about another uh, 20%. So maybe right over to here. Would you folks also stand up and join these? So 60% of the world, in essence, have no access unless we take a different approach than the approach that we've taken for the last 200 years, which is to send religious workers. So no gospel, no access. They also say that about 84% of all Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in the world today have never met an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. Now, most of that 84% lives here. A few of them live over here. So, for all intents and purposes, for them, there is no Jesus. They've never met anyone that looks like Jesus. Then there's about another 30%. So we have 60% and 84% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists scattered among them. Then there's about another 30%. So from here, let's say over to about the middle of here. Would you folks all stand up? Uh, about 2 billion people, mostly living in Europe and uh, the Americas and South Africa, uh, who have probably met a follower of Jesus Christ, may even have actually heard a presentation of the gospel. But for many of them, many of these folks, they still really have no idea what the gospel really is. A, it's a style of music or something. But they either have no idea or they have no interest. 
So here we have 90% of the world have no access, uh, have no gospel, no access, no Jesus follower friends, no idea or no interest. And so we all know, if we believe what this book says, that they have no hope. Apart from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, they have no hope. Well, then there's this group of people over here. You all may sit down, thank you. Would you all stand up? You represent the 10% of the world, these folks over here, the 10% of the world who are followers of Jesus Christ. We often refer to them as evangelical believers. 10%, about 700 million people around the world who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we have essentially told these folks that there are two things that they can do about these folks. You can pray, and you can pay, but you can't play. Why? Well, they've got no gospel and no Jesus and no access and no understanding and no interest. You have no call, so just sit down, please. You have no call. You can't play. You can pray and you can pay, but you can't play. Unless, unless you're willing to leave behind country, comfort, kin, and career and become like one of me, a full-time, fully supported, full-fledged missionary. Our response, and I know I'm overgeneralizing a little bit, but our, our response generally as the church to these folk over here is, has been to send one-tenth of one percent of these folk, literally one in a thousand, to this group of people over here. If we were to represent that today, we'd have to take one of you and lop off about seven pounds. Anybody like to lose seven pounds this morning? No? Okay. We believe there's a better way. Uh, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. Have you um, ever stopped to ponder how a man can be looking right at something and not see it? All you ladies are nodding your heads. Yes, this is a gender-specific problem, which makes it all the more uh, puzzling for us men. And you all know how it goes, don't you? Now, the guy says something like, Honey, what did you do with my favorite mug? As if he thinks that she has nothing better to do with her time all day than to sit around thinking up places to hide his stuff. But ladies, you need to understand that this happens to us so often that we actually think that that is what you do with your time. And then you know how it goes. She says... It's right in the cupboard where it always is, to which he replies, come on, guys. Well, it's not there now, as he rattles around mugs in the cupboard just to prove that he is actually looking. Then if your wife is a gracious lady like mine, she will come from halfway across the house, reach into the cupboard, pull out the invisible mug with a flourish that would astonish even Houdini, leaving the poor guy standing there with a, a dumb look on his face saying, well, it's not usually on that side of the cupboard. Now, ladies, you need to understand that in about zero, the studies have shown that in about 0.3% of the cases where this scenario unfolds, the mug actually isn't in the cupboard where you say it is. And when that happens, the guy will stand there with a self-satisfied look on his face as if he has just succeeded in scaling Mount Everest with his hands tied behind his back. Now, those same studies have also indicated that that look of self-satisfaction lasts only about as long as it takes for his wife to point out that the mug he has been looking for is already in his hand. Yes, uh, folks, I think you get the picture. It is human nature to see only what we're accustomed to seeing, to think only the way we're accustomed to thinking, and to do the way we are accustomed to doing. And unfortunately, it's not only a mug problem. It happens a lot 
in life. And I believe it happens with the gospel, too. About three or four years ago, at Crossworld, we realized that we needed to take a fresh look at that very old mandate that we call the Great Commission, not because we felt like we'd been doing it all wrong, but because we realized our tendency to see, to think, and to do only the way we are accustomed to doing, because that's sort of our human nature, even when things have radically changed around us. And we believe they have. Our world has radically changed. For example, the migration of nations. Every nation in the world represented our cities today. The non-Western missionary, the, the, the growth of the non-Western missionary force from about 1,000 non-Western missionaries in 1900 to over 180,000 non-Western missionaries today. They outnumber missionaries from the West by almost 4 to 1. Huge change in the missionary force. The development of a global economy. The uh, rapid growth of urban populations. 1900, 3% of the world lived in cities. Today, approaching somewhere between 50 and 60% live in cities. And they say by the middle of the century, 70 to 80% of the world will live in cities. Huge change in that regard. The explosion in technology, the restriction on religious activity in many countries are just a few of the things that demand that we take a second look. And so we did. We took a long, hard look at that greatest of all mandates, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And we discovered some missing mugs, so to speak. We discovered some things that we had been looking at but really hadn't seen. And we came to the conclusion that there's a better way. There's a better way to do life in a dying world. We all know that, and that's Jesus. But there's a better way to do missions in a changing world. And that better way is not some newfangled way as if we've discovered something that nobody else has. That better way has been there all along. I think sometimes we just haven't really seen it for what it is. And we need to open our eyes. So this morning I'd like to share with you just a couple discoveries that we made as we looked at that great commission. And then the application of what that looks like in our lives. So let me share you one thing we discovered. As we looked in the cupboard there, we looked at the Great Commission, we discovered that Jesus' way is about making disciples, not just converts. Go make disciples of all nations. Now, that's pretty duh, isn't it? Pretty obvious. But is it all that obvious? Jesus didn't merely tell his original followers to go and make converts. Nor did he tell them to go and plant churches. And please hear the rest of what I say. Because I believe that if we do what he told us to do, the product, the intentional product, is the church. But he didn't say go plant churches. He told us to do something far more fundamental than that. He said go make disciples of all nations, and teach them to obey everything I commanded you, which would include what? The very thing he was commanding them at that moment, which is to go make more disciples and teach them to obey everything, which would include to go make more and teach them to obey everything, and so on, right down to today. In other words, he told us to go and make disciple makers. Western Christianity has succeeded in making converts to fill the church but we believe there's a better way. And that is to make 
disciple makers to be the church. And that is why I'm so excited about being a little part of what's happening here today. That as you are birthing this new entity called the church at Mission View, that you want that in your DNA right from the start. What if we actually did that? I mean, what if somewhere on earth, and I'm not saying nobody does it, but let's just imagine, what if someone, anyone on earth, in response to Jesus' command to go and make disciples, began to pray and say, oh God, would you give me this year just one disciple? And what if in response to the witness of his, of his life and his words and his prayers, God should graciously respond and give him one new disciple? Then there'd be two of them. And what if in that second year, as they continued to pour into each other's lives, they both prayed, oh God, give us each one new disciple. And what if again, in response to the witness of their life and their words and their prayers, God again responded and gave them each one new disciple? Well, then there'd be four. And what if in that third year, as the four of them poured into each other's lives, they all again prayed, oh God, give us each one new disciple. How long would it take for one disciple and his disciples, disciples, disciples to thoroughly transform the world. I'm not talking about everybody doing it. I believe we all should. I'm not saying all 50,000 Western missionaries doing it. I'm not saying all 30 million evangelical Christians in America doing it. I'm not saying all 250 people. At I'm just saying if there was just one somewhere, one believer, one disciple, once a year, year after year after year. Do you realize that in 33 years, there would potentially be 8 billion, not million, 8 billion reproducing followers of Jesus? Now, I realize it's not a formula, and to say one a year, uh, that's not necessarily how it works, but what if it was even one every three years? Just, just somebody somewhere in 99 long years or short years, There'd be potentially 8 billion. Do you know we've been about this thing for 2,000 years? I'm thoroughly captivated by the, by the explosive power of doing what Jesus told us to do. To make disciples. It is birthed for us at Crossworld a fresh vision, which is all about unleashing the explosive power of spiritual reproduction and the untapped potential of every believer in the church. Second discovery that we made is that Jesus weighs about all professions, not just the religious profession. It's about disciples, not just converts. It's about all professions, not just the religious profession. We looked into the cupboard, and guess what we discovered? We discovered you! We discovered the body of Christ. We discovered that Jesus' great disciple-making mandate was for all believers, not just for a select few. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. You see, the disciple-making mandate was not only given to the apostles and to anyone who would leave their secular employee to become a religious worker. It was given to the whole body of Christ. Read the book of Acts again. The spread of the gospel in the first century was largely a result 
of regular believers taking their professions and scattering through the world and sharing the gospel. You say, oh, I thought Paul did most of it. <laughs> no, Paul did not do most of it. Paul was a great missionary. But you know what Paul said to the Thessalonians, for example? He said, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we had no need to say anything. That was just one group that he was talking about. Read Thessalonians, a great disciple-making uh, message. I think we have marginalized the body of Christ many times by essentially saying you can give us your money and your prayers, but leave the real full-time missionary work to us religious professionals. You can pray and you can pay, but you can't play. Just stay. I believe that's wrong. That is wrong. The very notion even that there is such a thing as we refer to as full-time ministry, I think is an insult to the body of Christ. How many times have I, I, I know I've said it a lot, how many times have we heard people talk about being called to full-time ministry as if that's some intermediate step between the common man in the pew and deity itself? I believe that's wrong. I believe every one of you are called to full-time ministry. What is what does Ephesians say? He said, God gave apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers to equip the saints to do what? The work of the ministry. Do you think he was talking only about the 30 minutes on Sunday morning you teach Sunday school and not the other 167 and a half hours? No, he was talking about the ministry of life. Work is ministry. Life is ministry. We are all called to full-time ministry wherever God has put us. British essayist Dorothy Sayers rightly observed, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in the failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. I think we've handicapped the gospel, the spread of the gospel worldwide by treating people like me as a sort of class of elite believers. And I know we're not elite, but we sort of treat this group as elite believers Religious professionals mobilizing a few believers for the harvest, I would humbly suggest there is a better way. It is to mobilize all professions, all believers for the harvest, right here and all around the world as well, to take to the nations the message of the gospel and make disciples. I already alluded at the beginning to 7 billion people, 4.2 billion of the 7 billion alive today live in places in the world where you can no longer send people on a religious worker's visa, but where because of a global thirst for business, for economic development, and for the language that you happen to speak, the doors are wide open for disciple makers who have those kinds of skills. God is using people from any and every secular profession today to, to reach into some of the least reached places on earth today using the very profession that we used to tell people that they needed to leave behind so that they could do it the missionary way. People like Andrew, for example. Andrew is an was an architect uh, by training. Uh, he also loves to build. He loves boats and he knows how to build things. He's also a disciple maker. He had actually been serving in Asia for a time as a traditional cross-cultural worker. And he had heard about this thing called BAM, business as mission. And he said, he got in touch with us one day, and he said, you know, I've heard about this thing called BAM, and there's a, there's a boat building company here where I'm living, and I'd be interested in buying it and actually using it as a means of making disciples. Can you help me? So we began to do some consulting with Andrew, and 
uh, help him work on a business plan and how to integrate that with a ministry plan so that his business truly was ministry. And then he raised some startup capital. And after a, a certain length of time, he was ready to go and buy this business. He bought a boat building business already in existence, 25 or 30 employees, and off he went. But how does a guy who is spending 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week trying to get his business up and running have any time for ministry? Well, in the first place, he had an immediate network of employees and their families and their friends, immediately, like that. Secondly, he lives out the gospel every day in the way he treats them in a world that is uh, very full of corruption. Uh, he's an honest businessman. He pays his employees a fair wage. He began hanging up little proverbs on the door from the book of Proverbs. I don't know if he put the reference, but he put a proverb up there. Do you know what his employees, all Muslims and Hindus, do you know what his employees began to say? They said, finally, this place is getting some religion. Can you imagine that happening here? Putting a proverb up on the door? I'm not sure if they say that, but that's what they said there because in many parts of the world, talking about religion, praying even together, that's normal. Well, we sent one of our vice presidents over there last year to ask him uh, to, to see how the business was going. He sat down with some of the employees and did an interview with them. He said, how do you like working for the company? They said, oh, we love it. We love Andrew. Really? Well, why do you say that? Oh, Andrew's good to us. He treats us fairly. He he does nice things for us. He said, really? What, what kind of things? Oh, well, sometimes he'll take us camping on the weekends. Yeah? What do you do when you go camping? Oh, we sit around the fire and we talk. What do you talk about? We talk about Jesus. Andrew's a follower of Jesus. He tells us all about what it's like to follow Jesus. In his part of the world, he couldn't do that if he went in as a religious worker. He'd get caught and kicked out. He can do that as an employer. That's his business. He's a North American. They expect a North American's a Christian. They just have a very poor conception of what a Christian is. They think it's Madonna. But he can go and do business, and he can live out the gospel, and he is seeing his employees hear the gospel and profess faith in the gospel. In fact, about three months after that visit, Andrew sent an email to that same vice president saying, a Hindu man, 56 years old, just accepted the Lord and was baptized yesterday. He has a wife and two 20-something young boys. He, he is a changed man. You say, make Making disciples with boats? Some people would say, Andrew's crazy. But you know, when I think back a few centuries, I can think of a guy who made disciples with boats. And a lot of other things that had to do with everyday life. God has awakened us to the reality that we need the whole body of Christ to reach the whole world. Today, let me just tell you, we need disciple makers with a heart to go out and start small to medium, uh, small to medium-sized businesses. We have some going already. Coffee shops, coffee roasting, tour companies, adventure, rock climbing, manufacturing, for-profit English schools. The sky is the limit. We need people who know how to start businesses to go over there and to uh, pursue economic, community, and spiritual transformation. That's what they do. They're there to transform the society through business. We need people who can take their professions and do that, who can either be a part of one of these entrepreneurial things, they're not the entrepreneur, but they can plug into one, or who can work for a company who will transfer them uh, to work in Dubai or to work in Chiang Mai or to work in Beijing or whatever, and to be part of one of these disciple-making teams. We also need people who will volunteer a few hours to a few days uh, a month over here 
to help consult for these young business startups, to help them put together a business plan that's viable and a ministry plan. We need subject matter experts who know things about things like international law to help consult with these companies so that they get going. We need the whole body of Christ if we're going to reach this whole world. Our vision, as we've expressed it at Crossworld, is simply this, disciple makers from all professions, bringing God's love to life in the world's least reached marketplaces. We put disciple makers front and center. We're not looking for all professions who might make disciples. We're looking for disciple makers who just happen to be good business people, good professional people. Disciple makers from all professions who bring God's love to life, to where people live, and to bring it to life. That's what the gospel is. It's not preaching it from the safety of our world. It's incarnating it in the brokenness of their world. And as um, Steve uh, already mentioned, there's a book. If you haven't read it, we'd love for you to grab a copy of it. There's some out on the table. If you don't have 10 bucks and you want to get the Cliff's Note version, there are some booklets, uh, 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 thinner booklets. You can grab one of those for free. There's actually a free download of it on Kindle, October 21st through 24th, I think, in there. I can give Steve the exact dates. But we would, I would love for you to read it. I would love for you to give it to somebody else and, um, and get the message out. What I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to talk about that first point, disciples, not converts. What is a disciple, and how do you actually make one? Here's how we've defined a disciple. It's only one way. It's not the way, but it really works for us. A disciple is one who is learning to live and love like Jesus and helps others to do the same. Every word in that definition is packed full of meaning for us. First of all, he's a learner. That's what the word actually means. Mathetes means learner. Discipleship is a lifelong process. It's not something that you do and you're done. No, it's a lifelong process of bringing someone to faith in Jesus and then bringing them to maturity in Jesus. It starts way over on this side of the cross and it continues on to this side of the cross. He's a learner. What's he learning? Well, he's learning all kinds of stuff. We could name dozens, hundreds of things that a disciple of Jesus needs to learn, but we believe there are at least three that are really at the core of what, it, what we want to see in our own lives and in the disciples' lives that God brings into our lives. Those three things are love, obedience, and self-sacrifice. For example, you spoke about uh, John 13 last week, I think it was. Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples. How? If you love one another. Followers of Jesus are characterized by love. Followers of Jesus are characterized by obedience. In the Great Commission, he said, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything. Followers of Jesus learn to obey. And then followers of Jesus are characterized by self-sacrifice. How many times in the Gospels Jesus said, Whoever does not deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, can't be my disciple. You need to die to yourself if you're going to live. So self-sacrifice. We actually, he actually puts those three together in one neat little place. If you want to remember them, remember John 12, uh, John 15, um, 12 through 14. Three verses. First verse. This is, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Followers of Jesus are characterized by love. Then what does he say? 
No greater love does a man have than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What's that? Self-sacrifice. Followers of Jesus are characterized by self-sacrifice. And then the next verse, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Followers of Jesus are characterized by obedience. And you know, there's a very simple way to remember those three. It's just an acronym, L-O-S-S, LOSS, Love, Obedience, Self-Sacrifice. Followers of Jesus are characterized at the very core by that. That's why our definition of a disciple is one who is learning to live and love like Jesus and helps others to do the same. He is a learner. It's a lifelong learning process. What's he learning? He's learning to live like Jesus in obedience to his word. He's learning to love like Jesus in self-sacrifice for others, but he doesn't stop there. You know, that's the problem with so much of our discipleship is that we stop there. It's not just about becoming more like Jesus. It's about helping somebody else become more like Jesus, about teaching them to obey everything. In other words, he has the DNA of spiritual reproduction. But how do you do that? How does a disciple make a disciple who makes a disciple? Five of the most powerful words that were ever spoken to me by another human being were spoken by the man who was to become my father-in-law, Pastor Jerry, and has since become my father-in-law. Pastor Jerry was, was a youth pastor in San Diego. Uh, he, was, he was known as a no-nonsense guy. He was referred to as God's drill sergeant. He is, not just was, he still is the most intense man I have ever met. He talks about Jesus. He talks about the word. He talks about the people that he's investing in. And he doesn't talk about much else. I married his daughter. I didn't know about him. I just wanted his daughter. But... Um, We'd been dating, and I had actually asked for her hand in marriage, and I had gone out there in September in 1981 to spend a week with the family. And so one day, I went out for lunch with Pastor Jerry. And knowing that, you know, he's pretty focused, I thought, you know, I, I better be ready for this conversation. So I thought, you know, what can I ask Pastor Jerry? And I thought of this really good question. So we were sitting there across the table from each other, and I said, Pastor Jerry, do you see anything in my life that I need to work on? I don't know what I was thinking. I think, I think I must have thought he would just look at me and say, no, praise God. This is how he talks, too, with a voice like this. Praise God, Dale. You're just a godly young man. Just keep going for Jesus. That's not what he said. He didn't even have to take a breath between my question and his answer. Five words. He just looked right back at me and he said, you don't love God's word. could have argued with him. I could have said, oh, time out. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean I don't love? I just graduated from Christian Heritage College with a degree in mission. What do you mean I don't love God? I have my quiet time every morning. I memorize four new verses a week. What do you mean I don't love? I'm starting in a full-time job next week as a youth pastor up in Elmira, Canada. What do you mean I don't love God's word? But when he said it, I knew it. Those five words apart from the word of God itself, did more to put me on the road to life transformation than anything else that anyone has ever said to me. And I say on the road because I'm still on the road. 
Western discipleship methods are often based on a programmed, pedagogic transmission of God's word. I believe Jesus' way is a much better way. It is not a programmed, pedagogic transmission. It is a personal, passionate embracing of God's truth. Perhaps the greatest deficiency in our Western disciple-making methods is that we are trying to impart something that we don't have. If God's word is not filling my heart and being lived out in my life in, a, in the context of another relationship, I don't have anything to give my disciple. I don't, I, you don't have to know the word like Pastor Steve knows the word, but you just need to be on the road. You just need to be filling your life with his word so that you got something to give somebody else. No discipleship curriculum can possibly make up for a personal, passionate embracing of the word of God. So what's disciple-making? Well, we've defined it this way. Disciple-making is helping people everywhere to live in love like Jesus. That's just the disciple part of the definition. One who's learning to live in love like Jesus and helps others do the same. So it's disciple-making is helping people everywhere to live in love like Jesus. How do you do that? By imparting God's truth through authentic relationship wherever life happens. And it's really about three things. If you want to get, get as simple as possible, it's about truth, relationship, and life. Truth, relationship, and life. It means loving God's word and pouring it into my own heart. Loving people sacrificially and pouring it back out into somebody else's life as I live life and do life with them and share God's truth with them and doing it in the context of life. Now, we could look at a lot of passages where we saw Paul doing that, where we saw Jesus doing that, but I'd like to just quickly go back to one that you looked at two weeks ago where God told his people how to successfully transmit the faith from one generation to another. This is nothing new. This is as old as the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 6, known as the Shema. It was the watchword of the Hebrew faith because they called it the Shema because that was the first word in Hebrew. Hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel. Notice if you can pick up these three elements, truth, relationship, and life, as we look at what he told his own people about transmitting the faith. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. Put them as, a, uh, some, on, put them as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and in your gates. Did you catch the three truths? That's where it starts. He says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. How do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? He tells you, this book of the law. That's how you learn to love the Lord your God with all your heart. This book of the law shall be on your heart. Before it ever comes off your tongue, it needs to be on your heart. It starts with God's truth. You cannot make disciples if you don't love God and his word passionately. So you just need to say, oh God, Help me love your word. Help me to get, get into it. Help me to get it into me. You know, I bet you eight out of ten days, I don't necessarily feel like feeding myself on God's word, but I do because the love comes from doing. This book of law shall be on your heart. That's the truth. And then what? You shall teach it diligently to who? Your sons. The most intimate of relationships you can find. Family relationships. It's truth. 
transmitted through relationship. And how do you do it? Saturday morning at Sabbath school. Tuesday night once a week in family devotions. Those can be good helpers in the discipling process, but he says you just do it as you go through life. You do it, you, you, you teach it to them, you talk about it when you sit down in the house, you sit in the living room with your kids, when you get up, when you're walking down the street, when you go to bed, when you wake up in the morning, you, you write it here, you put it here, you put it here, you just fill life. Just let God's word permeate how you do life with people. You don't preach at them every time you're with them, you live it with them and you watch for the opportunities to speak it to them and to teach. Some of it's formal, sure, but a lot of it's informal. And you can't do it if we don't get close enough to people to have a relationship. Three things, truth, relationship, and life. I like to say the content of disciple making is God's truth. The context is relationship. The classroom is life. Content, context, classroom. Let me conclude with a story. Back in 1955, Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, preached a sermon which was later published in a booklet called Born to Reproduce. Maybe you've read that booklet. Maybe you know of Dawson Trotman, great man. I never knew him, but founded a great organization, the Navigators. In that book, in that booklet, he recounts the following story that took place five years earlier, so 1955, so back in 1950s when this happened. He said, five years ago, Billy Graham came to me and he said, Dawes, we would like you to help with our, with our follow-up. I've been studying the great evangelists and great revivals, and I fail to see that there was much of a follow-up program. We need it. We are having an average of 6,000 people come forward to decide for Christ in a month's campaign. I said, Billy, I, I can't follow up on 6,000 people. My work is always with individuals and small groups. Look, Dawes, he said, everywhere I go, I meet navigators. I met them in school in Wheaton. They're in my school right now. There must be something to this. I just don't have time, he said. He tackled me again. Then a third time, he pled with me, and he said, Dawes, I'm not able to sleep nights for thinking of what happens to the converts after a crusade is over. I said to him, Billy, you'll, you'll have to get somebody else. He took me by the shoulders, writes Dawson. He took me by the shoulders and said, who else? Who else is majoring in this? Now, folks, that ought to make us just break down into who else is majoring in the one thing that Jesus said we need to be about as his followers? Trotman went on and he said, what will it take to jar us out of our complacency and send us home to pray, God, give me a girl or man whom I can win to Christ, or let me take one who is already one, an infant in Christ, and try to train that one so that he or she will reproduce. He concluded, you can lead a, you can lead a soul to Christ in 20 minutes to a couple of hours, but it takes from 20 weeks to a couple of years to get him on the road to maturity. When you get yourself a man, you have doubled your ministry. In fact, you've more than doubled your ministry. Do you know why? When you teach your man, he sees how it's done, and he imitates you. If I were the minister of a church and had deacons or elders to pass the plate and choir members to sing, I would say, thank God for your help. We need you. Praise the Lord for these extra things that you do. But I would keep pressing home the big job. Be fruitful and multiply. All these other things are incidental to the supreme task of winning a man or woman to Jesus Christ and then helping him or her to go on. Then he asked this question, men, where is your man?
Woman, where is your woman? You can ask God for one. Search your hearts. Ask the Lord. Am I spiritually sterile? If I am, why am I? You know, you are embarking on one of the most exciting journeys that you could possibly be on. The birth and the development of a new community of faith. We all know what human births are like. They're exciting times, maybe except for the one who's giving the birth. But they get a little painful. But birth is an exciting time. And I can tell you that there has never been the healthy birth of a new life in the history of the world without healthy multiplication at the cell level. Healthy bodies are a result of healthy cell multiplication. The future of this church, the future health of this church does not depend on how good that guy or wherever Brian or whoever you get to, is not dependent on how great he can speak. It is dependent on whether or not you commit yourself to doing what Jesus said, to make a disciple, to invest your life in one other man or woman, to make a disciple and teach them to make a disciple. What is a disciple? It's one who's learning to live in love like Jesus. Helps others to do the same. What does it take? Truth, relationship, and life. Disciple makers from all professions. That's what we need in the church today. Bringing God's love to life. Here and in the least reached places on earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've made it so simple. Love God, love people, make disciples. But we know it's not easy. We couldn't do any, we can't do any of this without your Holy Spirit. I just pray, oh God, that you would birth this church in a unique way and make them a people who are known by their love for God and their love for people. May they be people who learn how to relate to the world around them and live out your truth in ways that will draw people to Jesus Christ and to become part of this community of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you understand why I wanted Dale to be here today. This is a little bit different than maybe some might be used to, but there is going to be a re-emphasis of us taking a personal responsibility of making disciples. It's right before us. It's right there in Matthew 28. Jesus gave that commission, and I want to make sure that we're doing that. Next week, we're going to share a lot about how that's going to happen. It's going to, there's going to be a lot of things about vision and, and what we'd like to see, but it's about personal responsibility. Even the entire first service, our first series that we're going to be doing, which is the pursuit, we're going to be talking about the basics of obedience to Christ. And every one of the lessons we do here on Sunday is going to be reproducible for you to do with your disciple. And the goal is that every single person would take the very lessons that we talk about on Sunday and then talk about in our group that you will find somebody that doesn't know Christ or is a babe in Christ and that you would pour your life into them. So be praying about that. We're on a journey. Folks, this isn't about how cool we can look as a band, although they look it's not about dressing down or dressing up. It's about doing life. 
gospel and living it out every day. That's what we want to be. Just to let you know, Dale's going to be at the table in the commons. He's going to have these books. If you can't afford it or you don't have the 10 bucks, you tell Dale that Pastor Steve is going to personally pay for it for you. Now, only do that if you don't have it. It's not going to come out of the Mission View budget because we don't have it in our budget, okay? But I will be willing. That's how much I believe in this. I would. I want you to digest this because this is kind of a, an explanation of what's been on my heart. So if you want to know what's been on my heart, get this, read it, and if you don't have it, you can order it through Amazon. Just to let you know, we're going to have missionaries out here. We're going to do it a little bit differently. Normally, we just have interaction with each other. But what I want you to do is get your refreshments, get your coffee, and have a seat at a table because we have a Mexican invasion that's coming to town. Okay, they're going to be right out there. They're okay. They like it. Uh, they like being called the Mexican invasion because they are going to share the heart of the Latino. They're going to share what God is doing in Latin America. And so we are going to have kind of an informal sharing time out there. So get your refreshments and have a, have a seat out there. You're dismissed. Go get your go get your stuff. The children's ministry is going. The youth ministry is still going. This is for the adults in the commons area. Please join us there.